Hello, boys and ghouls. And welcome to an experimental episode. Bear witness as the podcasting duo takes two terrifying titles and trades them. Marshall will watch a movie that he has never seen, but Cat loves. And Cat has to watch a movie she has never seen, but Marshall loves. And what will be the result of this electrifying experiment? About 70 minutes of quality podcasting. As we present Boys and Ghouls, episode 59, Trading Trading. Terrors. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill the undead. So you ever so talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Look, the third switch give my creation so good <laughs> i'm trying to be all cool i'm like oh i'm gonna document our us drinking the cheer wine oh my god that's good cheer wine can you imagine it on a hot summer day powerful hot. <laughs> yeah an ice cold cheer wine is refreshing to say the very least um yet hello do you have any spooky gab um Nothing particularly creepy, spooky. I did get to see an early screening of the Belko experiment, which still won't be out by the time this drops. So I can't right. say too much other than to say it was it's very violent. But you can tell that from the trailer. All right. Do you still, know anything about the movie? I saw the ads. Okay. It's still nice to be sort of like walking around with a head full of information. That other people don't have. Totally. Yeah, I could give you an earful. I have a lot to say. And I'll be, I'll, I'm reviewing it for Horror Honeys, so when I get my review done, well, we'll share it on Boys and Ghouls. All right. Yeah, what about I, you? Well, I went to, um, I just want to celebrate our living in Los Angeles, because that that's what this little exchange is right now, which is just like, well, you see, I live in Hollywood, <laughs> California, where we sometimes see movies uh, ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Edit. Um, let, me, let me take you back a little bit. I was once setting up a lunch. and Oh, it's so L.A. And I said, okay, I'm going to come dressed a little nice because I'm coming from a viewing. And Uh-oh. she's like, oh, cool. And I was like, well, that's a weird response. Oh, no. I, I see where this is I, going. And I was like, no, no, not a screening of viewing. A, a man has died. And she's like, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> like, and I was just like, that's okay. L.A., am I right? Where we go to screenings. We do. Enjoying where I live. 
not just L.A., but like this area of Burbank. In the last week, I've gone to two horror art shows. Oh, my God. Did you go to the Kong one? I went to the Kong I've one. I've seen everyone's pictures. And the week before that, although the line was too long, so I just went on a different day, a different establishment, like three blocks away at the Mystic Museum, mm-hmm. they were doing a combo Hitchcock Twilight Zone Whoa. art show, uh, which that, that was fun. Any highlights to share? They really concentrated on the Eye of the Beholder episode where, you know, you don't get to see the doctor's faces. Oh, is this the pig people? And, and then they've got like pig faces. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Pretty Woman, that's the gal who played Ellie Mae Clampett <gasps> oh. from the Beverly Hillbillies. Well, I never. A series that my father is now working his way through. And he's like, he's like updating me. He's like, I'm is up he to- watching them on YouTube? Yes, in order. <laughs> How did I know? And then I just wandered down the street to the Kong art show. And I was just like, ah, Burbank. Yeah, I love Burbank. And you live so close to the horror strip of Magnolia. Right. You can just like stroll down. And... It wasn't like that when I moved here. Well, correlation, causation, I don't know. Let's just say. During which I texted you that uh, like Dana Gould was there. And I was like, Dana Gould's here. I didn't say anything to him. <laughs> uh, he was just having a nice night out looking at art. And uh, no reason for him to leave the place with my business card yeah next time next time you'll say hi i'll just be like i've got a podcast too it's about horror oh gosh you get like i texted to you you don't have to plug your podcast you could just say hello and I, just enjoy an interaction i and then also you don't have to make well he won't feel awkward swinging back to screenings i went to a screening of get out mm. like a week before it came out and, and now that it's out i still can't say anything about it because it's all you know Around the twist. Yes, you really have to experience it. I think even saying that is too much. Or, you know what? It's not even a twist. It's just like when you finally get an explanation, all the pieces fall into place. Totally. I just personally, I've become so averse to like trailers even. I avoid everything as much as I can. I don't want to know, even though I know movies are have things like twists in them. I just don't want my experience to be colored with anything going in. So, anyway. Uh, Jordan Peele was there. Yes. So we got a photo. We had, we had a nice conversation. I'd tell you what we talked about, but it's a spoiler. Mm-hmm. Like, Ooh, everything yeah. in that movie, after a certain point... I agree. ...is just all spoilers. Well, and Marshall took me to see it for his second time in my my first. second time. I saw it the first time. I had a screening at the Arclight, because I'm better than most people. <laughs> Hey, cat. Hi, Marshall. <laughs> Sometimes I like to stick music in, like right here, and it would have something to do with what our topic is. or Sure. And I thought, like, feels like the first time. Foreigner. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, because Kat and I, we both watched movies for the first time. We did. That we had never seen before. Specifically, movies that the other person adores. Yeah. We um, traded off, and 
the movie that Cat loves that I had never seen before, but I'm well aware of Cat's love for it, is Halloween 2. That's the 1981 Halloween 2. And the movie Cat had never seen that I make sure I watch like every year at least at oh, Halloween. Really? Yeah, this uh, episode could easily just lead into a uh, things that we always watch at Halloween. Sure. Because, well, Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. Duh. I always watch but that. But I figured, do you watch that all year just like you do with regular Halloween? Not typically. I usually just break out Halloween 2 at Halloween time. Makes yep. sense. And usually it's Halloween time when I watch Comedy of Terrors, 1963, with uh, just an all-star cast. Yeah. Well, I still can't believe you had somehow avoided Halloween 2, but we all have our list. And, like and I that. kept it a secret from you, by the yeah. way. But it's one of those things like I've never seen Polar Express because I only want to watch it like at Christmas time. But then every Christmas you get really busy, maybe you watch some other stuff, you're dedicating your what time you have to the staples. Yeah. It's like, well, listen, let me watch a Christmas story and Scrooged. And the Muppet Christmas Carol. Right, you're not supplanting one of those for Polar yeah. Express, which you haven't seen and don't even know if you'll enjoy. And same with Halloween 2. You really want to watch it, at least it's inaugural watch, at Halloween. Well, I've ruined that for you. You're welcome. <laughs> That's all right. Because <laughs> it's March. From the people who brought you Halloween, more of the night he came home. Halloween 2. There is no place to hide. He will always find you. Rated R. Halloween 2 has always been just kind of mythic for me. I watched it almost as much growing up as I did the first film. I had them both on VHS. And- Would you watch them back to back? Yeah, sometimes, sure. Like, almost yeah. without yeah. an interruption in continuity. Yeah. And they definitely feel different to me, but in many ways, like, it, the second movie is comforting as a continuation. You go, like, I don't have to leave Haddonfield. But the, the, There is movies I enjoy where it's just like, oh, I just want more. And then you're just like, well, I guess I'll watch the special features. Sure. You know? Yeah. And then, But you're like, I want more. Part two. But I had never really... I never really thought as a kid like how well it was received critically. That kind of thing didn't enter my mind. I never thought about whether it was good. a good movie. I just enjoyed watching it. And I think there was something so, about... Hold on. Let me ask everyone in the room. Me, my brother. Good movie. Absolutely. That's all you need. Now, although I hadn't seen it before... I had gone through a walkthrough with you. I wanted to bring that up. At Halloween Horror Nights. Yes. So you had all the kills spoiled for you. Were you to sit down before the movie and go, now I'm remembering this one and this one, yeah. and you would have... Um, at Halloween they Horror really Nights. they basically just recreated almost all of the kills at Halloween Horror Nights, which was kind of fun. They began with, just like in the movie, the ending of the first movie. And it started with, like, Dr. Loomis being like, boom, boom, boom. And, the, like, the Michael just sort of doing, like, that stagger walk forward and then backward as he gets, I shot him six times. And then it went from there. And I was on about year number two of a new complaint about Halloween mazes and Halloween events around L.A. that I was seeing less and less pumpkin and autumnal mm. things. And once I'd latched onto that idea, I was like, yeah, you know, the zombies are fine, but 
Where's the pumpkins? Where's the atmosphere? Yeah. And then and then that sort of followed me like maze to maze wherever I'd go. I'd just be like, yeah, it's good. But, you know, I remember when Halloween was about pumpkins. And boy, did the Halloween 2 maze give that right back to me. That one was like, like when I got out of it, like the only thing I could compare it to was like the Looney Tunes when like the little pig ate the pie and then goes to pig hell. And yeah. they're like, so you like pie, do you? Have all the pie you want. <laughs> and then he's like, rammed with pie. Because. It's like Homer with the donuts when he goes to hell. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> because the whole last third of this maze was like you're walking toward a giant jack-o'-lantern, which is actually how the beginning of this I was starts. about to ask you if you'd made that connection. So yeah, what they were oh, referencing yeah. in the maze, at the end, as Marshall said, you walk into a giant pumpkin and then you're inside the pumpkin. Yeah. They're pumpkin Which guts, and is... you, it smells a little bit like rotten pumpkin guts in a good way, and that's referencing the opening credits yeah. ha- from Halloween. Ha- Halloween 2 managed to distinguish itself from Halloween 1, which just sort of like went in on a jack-o'-lantern, and that's good with its simplicity. But now it's part two. You got to kick it up a notch. So once you reach the jack-o'-lantern, it separates, and then you're sort of like zooming in on the pumpkin innards until you reach a skull. And translate that into maze terms, we were just in like this room after room of like a pumpkin webbing, I'll just mm-hmm. call it, to, to simulate the guts of a pumpkin. Yeah. Like, I, I stopped complaining about no pumpkin. <laughs> yeah. So when you were watching Halloween 2 and those opening credits, were you like, I was in there? Aha! A little out of order. Yeah. That that was like the grand finale was like giant pumpkin mess. Well, I think it was well placed as the final thing in the maze because I think for fans of Halloween 2, of which I count myself a strong member of that group, that is such an iconic moment from, I mean, the movie opens by upping the ante. Like you said, it's a familiar thing Mm -hmm. to punch in on that pumpkin, but to have it crack wide open and you start off with that, it's such an image in your mind as a fan of that movie. So so they're like, you think you've enjoyed seeing all the kills? Guess what? You're going inside the pumpkin. Just total mind trip. Just watching it when that started to happen, because I was like, I've been here before. It was kind of like when I would see a new Star Wars film. Or just episode one, like there hadn't been a new Star Wars film in like 15 years. And everything's starting like normal. The music is the same. The logo's the same. And then the crawl starts and you're like, wait, I have to actually read this. Hmm. I haven't read this before. I don't know what's happening because mm-hmm. I'm just used to like, I know the crawl. I know who Princess Leia is. Yeah. And then with every new Star Wars film that has a crawl, you sort of have to stop and go, this is a new crawl. Yep. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. That was like, like the pumpkin split. I also compare Halloween 2, as far as my watching satisfaction, to when I had seen Back to the Future 2. In the part where he goes back to 1950. So it's like completely familiar territory, concurrent with the previous story. But we get to see angles and happenings that we didn't get to see before. Yes. Yes. That's a really great analogy. So I think what you're speaking to is... The fact that we get to we kind see of like Annie die in the first movie, for example, yeah, and then and you see the aftermath. You see her dad, Sheriff Brackett, and like, we meet other members of the police force. Body. Yeah, we get to see more of the town of Haddonfield. You get more talk of Ben Tramer. Ben get, Tramer. Ben Tramer gets killed. The ill-fated Ben always Tramer. Always hurt my heart, you know. When you really think about it, it's like so sad. Yeah. He's just some probably cute guy. It's like, hey, Lori, you get better. Maybe you can go to the dance with Ben Tramer. Sorry, or- <laughs> Lori. Not gonna happen. Yeah, maybe that shaggy hair paramedic will take you. Mm. 
So I decided to look up some stuff because I'm not sure if I ever really did about Halloween 2. I mean, we all know all the trivia about the first movie. It, it is surprising when you're a big fan of a movie, but you don't know much about it. Like, you just feel like it's in your blood. Yeah, totally. And then when you start scratching the surface, you surprise yourself. Absolutely. And one of the things that I... So if you're listening, and I guess we haven't said it yet, that Halloween 2 is a direct sequel to the first movie. It starts kind of like you see some scenes from the end of the first movie, mm -hmm. and it continues the evening to the point where it's really With kind footage of a from the November first film. first movie. Really. Well, after I mean, midnight, sure. After midnight. Yeah, so there is footage from the first movie. And they continue that evening as Laurie gets taken to the hospital to recover from her ordeal from the first film. And as law enforcement and Dr. Loomis try to hunt down Michael Myers. Who's still on the loose. But one of the things that I never thought of or read about is that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who wrote the first film and, and the second one, had originally considered setting this sequel a few years after the events of Halloween. They planned to have Michael Myers track... Reasonable. Yeah, it sure. It had been a few years. Absolutely. They planned to have him track Laurie to her new home in a high-rise apartment building. Sounds like another sequel we know. Yeah. So, but obviously that didn't happen. We refer to Poltergeist 3. Oh, God, my favorite poltergeist. Um, come at me. <laughs> uh, there was also discussion of filming in 3D. But as Deborah Hill was quoted as saying, evil lurks at night and it's hard to film in 3D. Yeah. In the dark. But I, I do think it's interesting because I don't know, for some reason, though, I have to recognize with my brain that like, I know that Halloween 2 is not the masterpiece that the first film is. But for some reason, it's I hold it in this reverent place. I think because I watched it so much as a kid, it's just solidified in my brain. I forget that it's positioned right alongside some of like that wave of 3D that it was kind of in, at least in the, the early up. That, that it exists among 81 horror. Yeah. And it really didn't just continue like 1977. Yeah. I don't think. After the first yeah, night. Absolutely. Let me tell you what sort of, because I've, I'm, I'm always a, a little sensitive to minor anachronisms. <laughs> yeah. The kid walking with the boombox on his shoulder. That's a great point. Now, maybe back in 77, some people did. But did they in middle America? It's a very much 80s in thing. In small town Illinois, I don't think it had really caught on by 77. By 81, you... just the, the act of walking with the... Yeah, no, I hear you. I'm just yeah. like, you're blowing my mind. Because I'd never thought about how out of place it's, that It's really almost is. iconic for the early 80s. Yeah. You know, back in 77, we just... 78. 78. Come out the first movie. Sure. You know, we just carried our radios down by the side. We didn't put them four inches from our ear. Right. Maybe in the big city, they might be walking around. Yeah. With it like that. I don't know. Um, no, I, I hear it, you. It feels. Absolutely. Right. I never thought about it. But you're absolutely right. It's totally out of place. And Jamie Lee Curtis's physique. She went on to be quite toned. She, yes. In the 80s. Yes. She's a woman. I think she really comes off in the first film as a as a girl. Oh, as a, yeah. like a 17-year-old girl. Like she feels like a high schooler. And you're right. In the, in the second movie, she just feels like a, it's like a woman's body. Well, they put her in a more. completely shapeless hospital gown. So that takes care of most of it. But even just like her face, her jawline, it's like what she'd been doing since 78, working out <laughs> and going for a shorter hair look, which they covered with a wig. And I have a note that says that wig. Mm. They laughed at me. They thought my wig was a joke. I didn't know much about this movie. I knew it was set in a hospital. I know a few of the kills. 
I knew there would be a dirty song, which you had to sing. Yep. At a trivia contest. It was at a midnight screening for, of Halloween 2, and Rick Rosenthal, the director, was there. Nice. Mm-hmm. He heard me sing a dirty song. Which, thanks to... There's a commentary mm. on Halloween 2, which I did not have, but it's on YouTube. So I did the like the riff tracks thing nice. where like I had to sort of time it with a, a car door got shut in a scene and I'm like, shut, play. Yep. And just sort of synced up my computer to my TV and then watched the commentary with Rick Rosenthal, who was the director, mm-hmm. we should say. Mm-hmm. First feature film. Yep. And the guy who played Bud, who was a friend of his, they went to acting class together. And as they revealed, the majority of the cast was all from, like, the Beverly Hills Playhouse acting class. Yeah. But, you know, if you know someone's capable, and you can get some work to your friends. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But you're talking about the EMT. Who's the EMT. hypersexual and yeah. filthy. Well, well you, you know, he pulls it, it off really well. Amazing Grace, come sit on my face. Don't make me cry. I need your pie. But why don't you just shut up, all right? The other EMT... Oh, the cutie one. The cutie pie. Yeah, he went on to be Alex in The Last Starfighter. Thereby, he also played Beta. What is that? I don't know what that is. That's where the guy's really good at playing video games. Oh. But it turns out that just sends a message to an alien that says that he would be a good recruit. Uh, He's the star. He is... The Last Starfighter. The Last Starfighter. Well, he, he also is very cute. Sure. And he spends a little time by Laurie's bedside. I always thought he was... He, he gives her a little extra attention because he... In this hospital pretty. whose staff and patients total about seven. I know. And one thing that my mom... Not including babies. One thing my mom always pointed out when we watched this movie, she'd be like, even in the middle of the night, no hospital's that dark. I observe that Michael Myers, after spending, you know, a, a few days or a day... How long has he been out of the asylum? Like two days? Yeah, a couple of days. A couple of days. Does some killing. And now he's back in a hospital, which is basically where he spent the last, like, 15 years. So he's kind of, I know it was an asylum versus a hospital. Mm -hmm. But you might be like, how does he know how to cut the power lines? How does he know how to cut the phone lines? How is he getting around this hospital that he's never been to so well in the storage rooms and all that? It's like, well, he's been in an institution. Just observing. Basically like a hospital. Right. A mental hospital for 15 years. This is this is his home turf. This yeah. is his backyard. Yeah. He's probably more comfortable in the hospital than he is out in the suburban streets. Mm-hmm. So look out. I like that train of thought. And looking at the hospital, I started to wonder, what's it like decorating a hospital for Halloween? Pumpkins, Indian corn, and straw. Everything we need for Halloween decorations. And I, I think they did it right. Uh, no skeletons. Nothing that would imply <laughs> death. A lot of orange, a lot of black, a lot of pumpkins. Yeah. Pumpkins. And like a witch at one point. But no g- ghosts. When I think about also... Or like Grim Reapers. The overnight... Yeah, certainly not that. The overnight skeleton crew, as it were, of the hospital, how many newborn babies there were in the nursery, but, like, did all the moms and dads just go home, and they're like, Mom, we'll come back and get them later. I had to stay behind for a while. I was a preemie. Could be a preemie ward. But... You gotta stick around and get incubated. Those kids don't look like preemies. I don't know. They never do in the movies. They don't. Of course they don't. It just seems as though, whatever. I've made my point. Also, Michael Myers, killing machine in a room full of babies... Meh. 
He's got some morals. Also, it's not like he went down the street in Haddonfield going like, die, you die, you die also. He has really one victim in mind. And if he can't get at that victim, he'll take a surrogate, which I'll say is the, the young girl. Really, just in movie terms, when he t- kills a teenager in her own house, that's just because it would be another, like, ten minutes till someone dies, so you need something in there. Mm-hmm. So, like, he goes in the house of the old couple, takes their knife, and then he finds, he's just kind of walking through the alleyways, finds a teenage girl alone, and is like, stab, stab, stab. And after that, then goes after Lori with single-minded determinedness. Except that he, I don't know, except that he kills a bunch of people in the hospital. Like, he doesn't have to kill yeah. the girl in the jacuzzi to get to Lori. Not really a jacuzzi. A I mean, therapeutic... Therapeutic hot tub. Now, let's talk about sexy things. Like, skin, burnt skin peeling off of the body? Before that. Oh, okay. You know, it's a horror movie. Sex, followed by death. It's certainly the first Halloween. It's a building full of beds, but they want something a little sexier. (laughs) So I was like, okay, what possibly could be sexy in a hospital? A therapeutic tub, which, looked at from another angle, is a jacuzzi. Yeah. For a couple of people looking to make love. And then he's dispatched pretty quickly. Bud, Mm -hmm. the horny guy, Mm -hmm. and, and the nurse he romances. And then she, this is one of, I think, your more favorite kills. Am I wrong? I mean, I think it's unique. As a, Watching it as a kid, it certainly left me, like, with a wide open mouth, like, what? He turns happening? the water up to scalding. Ultimately, yeah. she's drowned. But along the way, her face is just burned off. Well, yeah. burned. Scalded. Yeah. Not just her face, like, a lot of her body. Top part. And you see boobs. Yes. They're quite impressive. Ordering on spectacular. We have to be running along now. Can I just ask you on a fundamental level, like we can pick apart all these different kills and there are many Uh if we wanted to, but I think in general, like I'm just curious about your feelings about slasher Michael as opposed to like mythic shape Michael in the first film. You don't see him exactly too much and then in this one he's just all over the place and he's killing he's putting syringes through people's eyeballs and draining all their blood out and what's your what, did that feel like wrong to you for the character? Cause no, I don't, I cause I came on board it. I came on board with Michael Myers with like part four. Ugh. And by then, and this is what's been said and just what's thought of a lot about this particular one is it set a new standard with Halloween 1. It raised the bar. It was the inspiration for Friday the 13th, just for example, and lots of other things. And then when they come back to do something supposedly later that same night, they now have to compete with all of their imitators on the playing field that they changed, mm-hmm. which is now gory-er. And around 81, you would expect like a death and then... A little bit, and then a death. And, like, we see her boobs, so no, there's going to be a death. Yeah. And it's become a little more, not perfunctory, but instead of being a revolution, now there's more of a mold for it to go into. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowing that, knowing just the climate where horror movies were a few short years later, that was, you know... You can't have a revolution twice. (laughs) 
One of the things I really enjoyed the most about the maze, the Halloween 2 maze at Halloween Horror Nights, yes. was that they included the little kid. It was a little dummy kid. Of course, they're not going to have a child. At the Halloween bloody Horror pirate. Nights. The bloody pirate, the little kid with the razor blade in his mouth. Um, because as a child, that traumatized me. And like more than any other part, I can watch the syringe in the eyeball, no problem. But but I cannot, I still have a hard time looking at the screen. Presumably someone in Haddonfield kid. stuck a razor blade in some candy. And this kid is the victim of that. Yeah, and his mom's with him and she's like trying to hold ice up and there's just blood and it's all dripping out of his mouth. <laughs> We've discussed this before, how, at least by 81, nobody had ever been razor-bladed in their apple. Right. Razor-blade, I think, still has never actually been reported. I don't think it's ever happened. It's, it's all urban legend. But, but Pins speaking of urban legend... eventually happened. But thinking, speaking of urban legend, this is what I think is interesting, is I found this historian, his name is Nicholas Rogers, suggesting... That that scene in the film seems to have drawn inspiration from the, quote, contemporary controversy surrounding the holiday itself. So it's almost like a self-feeding, you know, the movie decided probably because of the urban legends around Razor Blades and the Apples to include that, which then further fed the idea that it was a real thing. Because people saw it in this movie and they were like, sure. yeah, uh-huh. Did you notice the score, the music, and how it was slightly different from the first movie? That's another thing with the few years that passed. Very, it's a very 80s... It got a little synthy. Yes. And to be quite honest, I kind of love the Halloween 2 score. I love it a lot. Every year when it comes time to change my ringtone to like a spooky theme, uh -huh. I usually have the Halloween 2 theme. Not the Halloween theme, but 2 as my ringtone. It's just got more bite. A little more fun. Know? Yeah. But also speaking of the music, the other iconic music moment that comes in this movie is the Mr. Sandman moment. Yeah, was that in part one? No. Okay. Good use of Mr. Sandman. Well, it was so impactful for the fans that they even included a reference to that in um, H2O. That makes that's no, that where makes, I'd heard that it. actually makes no sense. Where she gets in the car and she turns the car on and it's on the radio and she's like, ugh. Something I was glad to notice because we had covered this previously. You let me know all about the additional scenes that were shot for the TV movie. Mm -hmm. With, like, Lori, it's just a phone. So they brought back PJ Souls. And then Jamie Lee Curtis has, like, her hair in a towel. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, I guess the actress who played Annie didn't want to come back. Yeah. And then I You're watched... talking about the additional scenes for the first film. For the first film, made, made at the during same... the time that they were shooting, yes. Made the when second... they were shooting the second film. Exactly, yeah. So I was like, yeah, Annie didn't want to come back. Oh, well. And then I watch it, and she's back in corpse form. Yeah. It looks like the actresses were like, I'll come back, but I don't want to stand. <laughs> Besides her being a corpse. Also, trivia, she's the voice over the phone when like the nurse is talking to her friend. So you see and hear her. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Lori does not stand until an hour into the film. She's in a gurney. She's in a hospital bed. She has some flashbacks. She does a little talking. Mostly rests. Mm -hmm. She gets some rest. She's in and out of it. Doctor's orders. Mm -hmm. 
It's at the one hour mark that she like. It's a whole hour, huh? Stands. Wow. Yeah. And then she does. I've always really appreciated like the body work she does in the movie because it she's trying to portray she's like got the, being, these weak sort of like she, baby deer. Yeah. And how hard she has likes. to fight. And she's trying to like scoot herself across the floor or climb up a thing and her feet just won't work. I feel like there's something about that that touches on like a visceral nightmare level with us where yes. it's like the feet are in the, you know, oatmeal stairs like in Nightmare on Elm Street or pancake batter stairs or you're running and you can't run fast enough. It's that thing of like, move feet, move. Did you enjoy Halloween 2? I did. Yeah. I did, and I, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. And, of course, the nature of this experiment is, like, you know, thinking of you the whole time. Yeah. And being like, oh, I bet I bet Cat really likes that part. Does Cat, yeah. I bet Cat really likes that classic cat scare that yes. happens to the janitor. Yeah. Uh, or the ooh. security guard. And then he dies from, like, a claw hammer. Call end the, of the hammer. The That's a hard one to watch. And then All he, the kills are really hard to he, watch. He pretty much abandons the knife. Mm. At, well, he, he leaves it embedded in a school desk mm. during the uh, the Sam Hain scene, which I knew was coming because you told me about that. Yeah. Sam Hain. It means the Lord of the Dead. The end of summer. The festival of Sam Hain. October 31st. I thought they'd go further with that. They're like, Sam Hain. Quick explanation. I know. So is that a clue? Is that... Yeah, it kind of moves forward. Is that Celtic for hospital? So now you know where to find him? They also find the knife just sort of stuck in a desk on on a picture of, like, sister. Like a brother and a sister. And he's like, stabs the sister. They're doing a little retroactive continuity. Yes. Explaining why he was after Laurie. She finds out, right? That that's Mm -hmm. her brother? Yeah. Well, first of all, she just finds out his name. After everything in part one, she had no idea. It's only after she'd been in the hospital for a while does the uh, paramedic tell her. Mm-hmm. It's like, that was Michael Myers. She's like, Michael Myers? That little kid who killed his sister? Yeah. It's like, oh, he's he's bigger and he's back. Now, back to dementia. Well, they brought back, they brought back the horror movies. They're watching Night of the Living Dead. It's the same night. This is part of the six straight hours of horror movies. Yeah. Little Lindsay Wallace won't know what hit her. <laughs> and now I know his further lineup. So it was Forbidden Planet, The Thing, yep. from Another World. And then for the people who can stay up late, Night of the Living Dead. Which, watching Halloween 2 is my first introduction to, and the reason that I ended up watching Night of the Living Dead when I was in high school. Cool. I sought it out because I had seen that opening scene in Halloween 2 so much. I did like the uh, the use of the Night of the Living Dead uh, music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you hear the music, but you see Michael Myers. Yeah. And I guess I'd seen that for the first time in Scream when they used the Halloween music. Behind you. But you see the Ghostface Killer. So that's always fun. Yeah. Also, can mm. I just yes? My one of my one of the scariest. Every time it still gets me because. It's so nerve-wracking is at the end of Halloween 2 when he's been blinded by gunshots to the 
eyeballs or whatever's happened. Yes. And he's swiping the air with the scalpel, and she's just like trying not to get sliced and diced. I do now want to go go back and watch part four just so they can try to explain how Dr. Loomis is still alive <laughs> and how Michael Myers is still alive and not blind. Right. Yeah. See, those other sequels, they complicate things. You just stick to one, <laughs> two, and H2O. Halloween night. He murdered 16 people, maybe more, trying to get to his sister. Nearly got it, too. But his doctor, of all people, shot him six times. Then he set him on fire. Both of them nearly burned to death. Yeah, I'll be glad to see this one gone. Yes, indeedy. Uh, let me let me check my, my notes here, see what I wrote. Death by needle. Death by bloodletting. Yes, that one. Did that get you? For the time to have such a, just a pool of blood, and then he slips in the pool of blood. And hits his head. And hits his head. Ow. And then later concussed, finds himself in the same car that Lori's hiding in. Of all the cars, she picks like the one that he comes to. And then he just passes out. Honk. Head, head on the horn. Honk. Oh, he's, it's so stressful. He's it's like, so stressful. I think it's going to be okay. Honk. And then there's all these shots of a dark doorway that she's pretty sure he's going to come out of. And those are just like, any second now. Yeah. And then it goes, and then like she does something and then we look back and it's like, any second now. And also when she's seeing, she sees like Dr. Loomis and like running into the building and she's trying to scream, like help me. And she can't get it out. That's also very much like a dream. A nightmare. Awful nightmare. Just a thing from the commentary. They talk about how, Jamie Lee Curtis gave it her all, even though this is her second time doing this part. She's on her way to being a... Just, she could have been uh, been there, done that. I'll just lie in this bed. You guys make a horror film. Mm-hmm. But when it was time to crawl along the asphalt and, like, bare feet, and she's right there with it. Yep. Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance. It's the night he came home. Halloween 2, Thursday at 8. On channel 17, parental discretion advised. I wrote here, brought to you by Coke. Sometimes some pretty scary things will be happening. <laughs> and they'll just be like a, a very well-placed like Coke machine. <laughs> now I'm not going to be able to unsee that. Well, she does also or, ask him for a Coke. Yeah, there's these like, her, hey, her a Coke. can I have a Pepsi? No. Yeah. Coke. Yeah. Because everybody in this movie drinks Coke. And when he goes in to like steal the knife from the old woman, she's like making a sandwich. And there's some nice Coke on the counter. Michael, this time played by Dick Warlock, a stuntman who made his movements a little slower and methodical compared to the last one. Not that he moved terribly quickly in the last one. But this time, that slow killer walk really got defined. Well, in part and I two. think I read that he talks about how he didn't really have a ton to go off of from the first film, so he studied the scenes that he could from the first movie. And then you're right. I mean, I think he kind of had room to define it how he wanted to, and I think he does a great job. And if you want to see what he looks like, I looked up his credits. He was the stunt coordinator in Spaceballs, ha. but you can also see him as Vulcan Neck Pinch Guard. What the hell are you doing? 
the Vulcan neck pinch? Oh, no, no, stupid. You got it much too high. It's down here where the shoulder meets the neck. Like this? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There wow. you go. That's Mike a connection I never would have. Michael Myers. Wow. Starring Vincent Price, who, inspired by a seductive woman, is overpowered with lust to kill. Peter Lorre, too sensitive for both the life he lives and the lives he takes. Boris Karloff, the ancient one, with a fount of sweet memories. Alexander the Great embalmed in honey, so they say. <laughs> Abundantly blessed, Joyce Jameson, an unhappy, unkissed bride. Rhubarb, the cat in the house of unholy horror. And inimitable Basil Rathbone. Have it, you, sir! Whose wrath will slash you to the bone. A mad killer, like the angel of death, stalks his next victim. Marshall. Kathmandu. Where there's a tit, there's a tat. And I titted you with a Halloween <sighs> 2, and now we're gonna tat me. I watched The Comedy of Terrors from 1963. And had a total blast watching it. I did not realize that you watch it every year. This is like a super duper staple for you. Yeah, it, it kind of grew into one. Okay. Owning it helps. Yeah. So When did, um, did you see it as a kid? No, no. It just sort of like came as a progression of watching Corman Poe, Vincent Price films, mm -hmm. which mostly occurred when I was working for a video store, you know, because they were plentiful. And I probably stayed away from it because of its title, which I understand it didn't do as well as it could have mm -hmm. in the box office. Because when you come out and just call something, you know, comedy, like if you call something like The Laugh Riot at the Beach. Like it better be the funniest damn thing. Yeah. Well, I read Richard Matheson, who wrote the movie, which yes. we'll talk about. He talks about how he he was like, I don't know, maybe they just couldn't figure out how to market it. You know, like he felt like the, t the title was maybe part of the problem. Yeah. Because it's not that it isn't funny and about macabre things. It's just like maybe a different title might have. Yeah, he was just You want to let people what... know what they're in for. Sure. You don't want to like trick them. Yeah. Because then, then they really won't like the movie if they come expecting one thing and get another because, like, they were in the mood for a horror movie. I know that the movie theaters, they just show scary monster movies so that you drop all your popcorn and your candy on the floor, and then later they pick it up and put it back in the boxes and resell it. I find that many of my Halloween time staples are more fun than straight-up scary. Yeah, I've learned that about you. <laughs> and uh, maybe we can get to some of them in another episode. But always, sometime in the month of October, I'll put in Comedy of Terrors. So, the thing that's fun about this movie, I think, I mean, other than the obvious, like, there are comedic things that happen, but what's the most fun about it is that you have your favorite spooks, you know, a cast of characters who you're familiar with, mm -hmm. thrown together to do, not for the first time, but one of these movies where you get the greats and they're all being kooky and funny, and yeah. making, you know, coffin puns and you know, just being silly. Gallows humor. Gallows humor. 
stubborn crackpot. I could have sworn he was dead. It's about time. I've never had such an uncooperative customer in my whole life. In short, let's say the cast and, and the premise. Comedy of Terrors. Vincent Price is the star, ably backed by Peter Lorre. So funny. Boris Karloff, Basil Rathbone, and... Joyce Jameson. My father had a thriving undertaking business until you proceeded to get a hold of it and run it into the ground. Where else? <laughs> she was in Tales of Terror. See, so for years, AIP, Roger Corman, and I can't mention Roger Corman enough in this movie he had nothing to do with. <laughs> but Roger Corman had been making the Poe films with American International Pictures, AIP. And they've done like Mask of the Red Death. And they'd done Fall of the House of Usher and Pit in the Pendulum. Then Tales of Terror was three segments of like Poe stories, some kind of combined and altered. And they did the section The Black Cat, which hmm. there's a great photo spread when Life Magazine went to the cat auditions. I've seen those pictures. Is that what yeah. that's from? And all these people like brought their black cats and they brought in like Peter Lorre and Vincent Price to like look at the cats and be like, hmm, yes, nice, nice black cats <laughs> for their black cat segment. And that was like a funnier segment. Vincent Price plays a very poncy character. He's like this wine aficionado who like smells the wine and, you know, and then Peter Lorre is this drunk who like wins in like a wine duel. Bordeaux, Cabernet, Chateau Marco, vintage 1837. A bit heavy for a Marco. So just this one part, the black cat part, was funnier than the other two parts. And that part also had Joyce Jameson, who plays the wife in Comedy of Terrors. And it also had, had uh, Basil Rathbone mm -hmm. in it. But he wasn't in one of the comedy parts. He was in like the more straightforward, scary parts. Are you some dark-winged messenger from beyond? Answer me, monster. Tell me truly. Shall I ever hold again that radiant maiden whom the angels call Lenore? How the hell should I know? After that, they did The Raven. Also, Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson also had been doing all these Poe films along with Roger Corman. And based on the success of... That Black Cat segment, they said, well, let's make The Raven a comedy. And Corman was like, great, because I've been worried that they're all just starting to blend. You know, Dark Castle, Mad Madman, you know, they can get a little tedious. So The Raven, Peter Lorre came back as a guy who got turned into a raven. Because once they finished with like the poem part, now they've got a whole movie to, to fill. <laughs> so they bring in sorcery and there's a wizard's duel. With Vincent Price as one wizard and Boris Karloff. Bring in Mr. Boris Karloff as the other wizard. And it has quite little to do with the poem, The Raven. Yeah. But they do bookend it. Quoth the Raven, nevermore. So all of that is to say that the Comedy of Terrors is one of kind of like a series of... To me, it was all building to Comedy of Terrors. Got it. So then after The Raven, Comedy of Terrors... Bring back Karloff, bring back Lori, starring Vincent Price, and let's get Basil Rathbone in it. And by now, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein had already happened, and their follow-ups. But when you look at them, 
you got the monsters over here, but then you got the comedians over here. But holy smokes, let's have the monsters be the comedians. Or the yeah, I mean no one no one's like supernatural. Right. In this, they're but all the, just the sort creep, of ghoulish. The creepy guys, yeah. The creepy guys, the masters right. of horror, mm-hmm. are all together now and going back and forth as like perpetrator and victim with each other to comic delight. Mm-hmm. And these guys can do comedy and and do it well. Yeah. We have gathered ourselves together within these bud wreath walls to pay homage to the departed soul of. Uh, What's his name? One of my biggest impressions was I had to keep going back and looking at the year that it came out because something about it felt more modern than the year it came out in. Possibly ahead of its time. I don't have a great barometer for that. Well, yeah, I don't either. It's just a feeling I had where, to me, it felt like a young Frankenstein type of, which I know was only, what, like 10 years later? I guess when I think about the fact that this movie was just like early 60s, not even really mid-60s, I just think like, it just doesn't feel that old. It was going up against like beach party movies. Right. For some reason, it feels more contemporary, not necessarily now contemporary. And of course, to further complicate things, the movie is set in like the 1800s. Yeah, just like I tried to figure out, I was like, Poe times. Yeah. It's set in Poe times. And and Um, it's it's not a Poe story. Right. So it's the first one of these that's not a Poe story. And... Roger Corman has nothing to do with it, but it's completely built on the back of the Corman Poe films. And while I am not the most well-versed, like, you know, some of these older monster movies with Karloff and it's still a little bit of a blind spot for me. I've seen certain things, but not every, so that's why we have these conversations. To me, It is. And to me, these guys are, I'm loosely familiar with each of them. I don't think I could possibly have that experience of, like, all these old pals I know so well coming together. It's not quite that impactful for me. Sure. But I can appreciate it enough to delight in watching them all interact with each other. Vincent Price is so swishy and funny. Like, I, one of my the favorite examples... The faces he makes, too. The faces he makes. One of my favorite examples of an exchange from the movie, and there were many like this. Oh, hold on. Qu- quick plot. Oh, yeah. Go for Vincent it. Vincent Price is a... Not dastardly, but... Uh, he's a scoundrel. He's a scoundrel. Yeah, he's a, he's a straight he's up a scoundrel. Scallion. Who runs an undertaking business. Peter Lorre is his assistant. But when business gets a little slow around the funeral parlor, they go out and make their own. Yep. And they get money from people for the burial services and the casket, but then they just reuse the casket yeah. each time. Well, that's what, I mean, it starts, I mean, it wasn't for the title. It starts very straightforward. You got the low fog. You got the bare trees. As there's a burial, and there's Vincent Price, pretty scary. There's Peter Lorre. He's he's always up to something. Yeah. And then the mourners leave, and they just take... They, they're trying to maintain their air of, like, respectfulness as yeah. long as they have to, and they're, like, kind of cutting their eyes, and finally when everyone's gone, they're like, okay, and they... They just like, pick up the coffin the body out and dump them out, <laughs> because they've been using the same coffin for, like, 13 years. Yeah. And then just the music, and they just sort of fast forward and bury him. Just so now you know what kind of movie you're watching right. with, with that scene. What I love about the dialogue, and this is to Richard Matheson's credit, and and um, everyone's delivery, but especially Vincent Price on like the way his character is very verbose and he has that air of like 
He's very know, flowery. He's very fl- yeah, but he can assume this air of like Poean propriety and have this like really verbose language. Mm-hmm. But then when he can drop it, he does, and like to great comedic effect. It's like there's an exchange where he's killed a man yeah, to he's, like smothers him with a pillow. Yeah. And he's talking to the man's widow, who's young and beautiful. Played by Miss Beverly Hills. <laughs> what a name. That sounds like a drag queen name, and I love it. At the time, stripper name. Ooh, she was like huh? a renowned stripper. Nice. But she's beautiful. And he says, you know, allow me, madame, in this moment of your most desolate bereavement, to lift from your sorrow-laden shoulders the burdensome task and she says, what? And he goes, I'll bury him for you. You know, he's... Yeah. And, and those were the moments where I, like, honk laughed out loud. <laughs> where it's just, it's just funny. And it's so charming. And Peter Laurie is so funny. He's so good and so sympathetic. You just feel yeah, bad for the guy. I think once he put on a lot of weight, then he became... Um, Richard Matheson said, at that point in his career, you couldn't make him vicious. He always had to be sort of, like, put upon. Which, he's great. He's just this put-upon, well-meaning scoundrel's assistant. I love, um, he just has such great delivery, too. Like, Vincent Price is forcing him to, like, do all this stuff and never thanking him for anything, just being generally rude to him. And Peter Lorre says something like, Why did I ever leave prison? It was so peaceful there. (laughs) Yes. Now, it's been well-documented. Lorre was quite the improviser. Hmm. So, a lot of moments, that might have just been, like, Pure Lori. <laughs> but going back to the Raven and then continuing through, Boris Karloff was more classically trained and would, you know, show up knowing his lines and not really one for improvisation, would sort of get thrown by Lori going off of script. So then you had right in the middle, Mr. V. Price there to sort of balance out between the two guys, the, able to keep up with Lori and the style of Karloff. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think he's quite dead enough yet to bury you. You don't think he's quite dead enough yet? (laughs) What place is this? And that leaves Basil Rathbone, who is... I'm uh, not terribly familiar with. Nor I... I know the name My introduction to him came in in the movie Ed Wood, where he's like, I met a movie star think horror and she goes you met basil rathbone (laughs) he's like oh phooey (laughs) turns out i've been familiar with him for years he is the narrator in the mr toad portion (gasps) of oh of the ichabod uh, ichabod mr toad wow yeah now on that particular day mole was in a hurry because oh yes of course because he was late for tea his Career is long and distinguished. And he also has a great name. Uh, an awesome that name. we can say, for sure. He played Sherlock Holmes a lot. Yeah, I he, read that. He would play a lot of villains, and he had done uh, a fair shake of horror. He was the son of Frankenstein in Son of Frankenstein. So, like, he was the originator of the darts scene that was later parodied in Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Nice grouping. And then he just sort of grew and became iconic. And at this point in his career, he was known enough for giving the frights to step right in with Karloff and Price and, and Laurie. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't Karloff supposed to play that role that he, Rathbone... Rathbone plays the he's landlord. He's a landlord who has... And this is a Poe thing, uh, the, the catalepsy. 
which will cause you to be prematurely buried, like in the movie Premature Burial. Where he falls asleep or, or faints or passes out and appears, it looks like he's dead. He has all appearances of death. So yeah. because he's their landlord that they owe a lot of money to and he's going to evict them, they're like, well, it looks like we found our next customer. So he sends Peter Lorian to kill him because it's like he doesn't want to climb up on the roof. And he's practicing Macbeth verbosely in his home. This guy looks like he's a riot. Yeah. Uh, because just on his own, he's like running through his house, chopping candlesticks with a sword, yeah. giving lines for Macbeth. And Peter Lorre gives him such a fright. He's presumably died from a heart attack, but it's his catalepsy. He's, he's like actually alive. or something. Yeah. They get him back and then it sort of builds and it's it's gone from like gallows humor to now like gallows action. <laughs> yeah. More physical comedy. Which as, is why, as a, well, that's what I was going to say, is that Boris Karloff was going to play that role, but it was, I he, guess, he had, too physical for him. He had, like, arthritis, and he was just bad getting legs older. At, yeah. At that age. So yeah. they, instead, they gave him the role of the father-in-law, the one who had owned the funeral parlor before, and he did yeah. such a good... Like, it took me a while to even realize he old. was. And he's so... Yeah, he's, like, oblivious, but... And, like, at the end, he's like, you know, oh, this will revive you. Here's your... You know, you've got a bottle in your pocket. I'll feed you some Here's of it. Here's your it's medicine. Poison. Yeah. It's poison. Very funny. <laughs> oh, you're feeling better already, huh? Oh, no good reaching for it. It's all gone. You took every last drop of it. But yeah, it does get so farcical. Like it, all of it's funny, it does. It's like comic. He's... But by the end, it's this weird Shakespearean. I mean, obviously, literally comedy Shakespearean. Of yeah, comedy of errors, comedy of terrors, being referenced. But yeah, like people are presumed dead, not dead. Yeah, and you know, you've turned a corner when they've got Rathbone in the coffin. Lori and Price are sitting on the coffin. And he's just pushing up. Right? Let me out. And of he's here. like, but you're dead. No. <laughs> oh. Well, before they try to slam him back in there, he's like, I assure you I'm not. He's like, oh, you most definitely are. Everybody knows. Every, as far as everyone knows, you are dead. So they inter him in a crypt. And here's something that might have made it feel sort of modern. He comes out. Now, just to give you a, a physical description of those of you who don't know Basil Rathbone. At this point, he was uh, an older gentleman, as, as they all kind of were. Spindly. Thin mustache, mm. but wielding an axe. Mm -hmm. He's out of the grave and he is pissed. And he gets to their funeral home slash home home, uh, which is filled with curios just because that's kind of a horror staple. Mm -hmm. and, and there's one part where uh, Vincent Price gets a little spooked by a painting of Boris Karloff. And I can't help but think that that painting was just from some other AIP, like the terror or something. Sure. And they're like, stick it in there. <laughs> Sure. And the last portion of the movie is Basil Rathbone, axe in hand, rampaging, <laughs> chasing these guys through their house, knocking down doors, swinging the axe. And I don't think that axe murdering really would take off for another few years. Mm. Right? I think straight jacket with Joan Crawford. I think she wielded an axe. But to have like a, I'll just say it, a slasher. Yeah. Right? Like, this movie took a turn, never stopped being funny, but just the iconography of, like, Madman with an Axe yeah. really takes you into slasher territory. Sure. It really becomes such a romp by the third act. Something's been opening doors around here. But what? <laughs> I must give a very enthusiastic shout-out to the kitty cat. 
So there's a cat who's an incredible actor who's in this movie. RNG the cat, sometimes credited as Jimmy or Rhubarb, is Mm -hmm. also Cat from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes. Breakfast at Tiffany's had already come out. And I think that that cat was like as big a star as was treated in the movie as far as like screen time goes. It's like, put the cat in this shot. Bring the cat along for the murder. Why? So that when someone falls down, the cat can look up and then down. Yeah. And we can have like a cat reaction. I I appreciated how much the cat was in this movie. Like the whole ending credits. Yeah. It's just like the cat walking through the house. It's incredible. With credits. And I I was reading that the cat was like totally an asshole and like would scratch people. But (laughs) because the cat was so good at like hitting its marks and would sit still for a very, very long time, which you need for filming, and they could easily get it to do the things they needed him to do, they were like, well, we're going to just deal with it. Yeah, but apparently he was kind of a diva, but also like won some awards. Had an artist temperament. Yes. But I just was so thrilled to see the cat, even in just like at the very, the very beginning, the cat's like sitting at the, at the kitchen table, like with everybody and just kind of sitting in a chair, looking at everyone. Just just regarding everyone. Like what's happening? And then they just continue to deliver with that cat, which, you know, just cut right to the cockles of my heart. Now? No, not now, you old fool. We have to wait for the damned widow to get here. Huh? What? Oh, oh, oh yes, yes. He, he does look very natural. Probably the centerpiece of the film, though, for at least Vincent Price, is the part where they do go out. He does kill a guy. He holds the funeral. But the widow never shows up. Mm-hmm. Miss Beverly Hills. And so he goes back to the house and finds all the furniture's gone. She's left for Boston. He's like, what about my money? And, and they're like, no, no money for you. And he realizes that he's been stiffed. And I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you. And then just like he looks so forlorn and like they shine a light right on him. He just goes, is there no morality left in this world? <laughs> <laughs> Which that that play on you know just the murderer getting stiffed and, mm-hmm. and feeling like a victim. Mm-hmm. So that says it all. Yes, it, it does. Re- it really does. I thought he was dead. He'll never die. Oh, good work. It's a little better in a, in a dog. What is decapitation? Quinn, after a, a goodly rampage in Comedy of Terrors, Vincent Price finds his way to a gun, puts two in Basil Rathbone, and he takes forever to die. He, like, goes down, and then he's back up again. And he says some more Macbeth, and he's down. And he's back up again. He just won't die. And he's, he's like a, the world's biggest ham yeah. with his death scene. Him and Paul Rubens from, you know, the Buffy movie. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's pretty funny on its own. But for me, the real laughs come from, like, watching. And I always love when an unflappable character gets flapped. And that's Vincent Price in this film when he's watching this guy who he's already thought has, was dead like three times already. Just like get up again and down and up again and down. <laughs> so now I, I picture Vincent Price just running to somebody going like, I shot him two times. Yeah. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then... Is heard no more. That I'll believe when I see it. But, you know, Loomis is running around. 
I shot him six times. I shot him two times. <laughs> wow, you've he can't be parallel. stopped. I, there I, you go. It's impressive. A pretty, uh, pretty hard to kill fellow. That's it, folks. For those of you at home, I hope um, we've exposed something new to you. Both sides of this microphone contain someone who uh, discovered something new and got to share something. Yes, I think it's a good uh, maybe go maybe go find a buddy and do the same thing. I mean, or just watch either of these movies. So much of Boys and Ghouls has inadvertently just been about what we purposely set out to do today, which is show and tell. You know, that's what yeah. you and I do. Like a big we, homework assignment. Absolutely. And some of the time we make sure that we're watching all of the same stuff. But some of the time it's like, here's a topic. We're going to watch at least these two movies. And then you and I will split off and we end up kind of finding little gems to share with each other. Like, I watched this. Well, I watched this. And it was kind of fun to do it as just like a very purposeful thing of like, I've always wanted you to see this. And let's yeah. find out. Let's pick your brain. If um, you and I had unlimited time, we would watch these movies together. Yes. The fact that we managed to get together to watch Get Out yeah. was like a success in scheduling. Yes. So just the fact that you were out there watching it on YouTube, by the way, as of this recording, all of Comedy of Terrors is available on YouTube. Yes. Halloween 2, if you want to hear its commentary, that's how I found it. You just have to do a little rigging. Yep. I have the, um, I'm sure the commentary is on there. I haven't thought to watch it because I'm terrible. Again, it's just this movie just like, to me, it's almost not a movie anymore. Halloween 2. It's just like part of me. So you're right. I've never, it's this I've thing never that happened. Bothered. But I have the full box set of all the, ha- Blu-ray of all the Halloween movies. Like I should probably break that one out sometime. Watch the commentary. Yeah. Sure you, you, you forget, I think with your favorite movies is just like it occupies such a big part of you and you have to say like when's the last time i really sat down and watched it absolutely all the way through not on while i was cleaning not a segment of it i found on youtube and sent to a friend yeah just sat down beginning to end and watched all of it that's what um revival houses can be good for Mm. you're like why would you pay seven bucks to see a movie you have at home on dvd and it's like well i'm paying them to make me sit still to park my butt and watch yeah. only that. Not that and my phone. Only that. Unrelated, did I tell you that I watched the entirety of Gone with the Wind on my flight back from North Carolina? I did not. A couple of weeks ago? I meant to tell you that for the exact same reason. I, You know, I read the book, which is like over as, a thousand As it was intended to be seen. On a plane. On a on plane. On a tiny screen. For a while, I was trying to track down to see it on the big screen. Because I was like, I'd rather do that. Because, you know, why not? But the screenings are... Few and far between. And sometimes they happen. And if they're going to happen anywhere, it'll be in L.A. And I I probably, if I'd stuck to it, could have done it. But I happened to be on the plane. And I was like, all right. It would take me six hours to get through this three-hour and 40-minute movie if I were to try to watch it at home. Because I would pause. I would go. Play with a cat. Right. 
I, you know, I, I wouldn't make myself sit down. And, and I was like, I am a captive audience on this plane. I'm sitting. It was just one of the choices. And I was like, well, here we go. Dun, and, dun, I, dun, dun. and I ended up finishing it out right as the plane went. Like, it had landed. And we were, like, waiting to taxi into the gate. And I was like, no, stay here. I have to finish the movie. And finally finished it. But, yeah, sometimes. Tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow is another day. Luggage. That's right. Exactly. But it's, it's, um. I think you're right. When you've seen something a million times, it is nice to sit down and just force yourself. Like and just gonna, watch maybe, Ghostbusters. Just watch Ghostbusters. And you usually find something, a moment that like, I don't know, you just hadn't noticed in a long time or a thing you, you hadn't really noticed in the background. And it's like, oh, what a gift. If I'd been doing laundry, I wouldn't have yeah. caught that. All right. Cat, uh, any pugs? Horror honeys. Yeah, well, keep look for her review on uh, that out. what was it called? The, the Belco experiment. The Belco experiment. I'm also doing an interview. I did an interview with. So I saw. I've saw, seen a couple of early movies this month. I saw the Belco experiment in a theater, and I also saw an early screening of Raw, which is a French horror film that is kind of a coming of age cannibalism story. Not but, to be confused with Eddie Murphy's Raw. No, not at all. And I spoke with the director, who she's she's so crazy and cool and I, I don't know if that's going to be in the magazine i think it might be in the magazine not online but you can subscribe to the magazine buy a copy listen folks i do what i can to get as much cat in my life <laughs> you should do the same oh you and if you uh want to be privy to our random thoughts find us on twitter if you'd like to see uh fun photos horror movie behind the scenes that i uh garner through the internet Where pinterest tumblr and uh, these photos also wind up on our Facebook page mm-hmm. and our Twitter page, for that mm-hmm. matter. Kat's got her Instagram. Yep. Well in line. And between all these things, just uh, give us a follow. Contact us. Let us know who you are. You can uh, get us most directly, I'd say, at our Gmail account, mm-hmm. boysandghouls at gmail. Com. And very importantly, if you could just take 30 seconds out of your day and rate and review us on iTunes, that helps us Doesn't cost immensely. you a thing. Yeah. We will appreciate it very much. And uh, Kat, perhaps you could give everybody a warning. Beware the moon. Beware. Beware.